0: Today is Sunday, February 25th. And for this tea show, I'm going to talk about the ebb and flow of practice, focusing especially on the ebbing. And by ebb, I'm referring to periods where one might feel disconnected, unmotivated, bored, or just plain stuck. Whereas in times of flow, one feels engaged, concentrated, and energized. When we first start out in practice, it's common to feel really motivated and inspired. And that's because doing zazen is fresh and new. So one naturally has a beginner's mind. That's a term that was popularized by Suzuki Roshi To refer to a mind that is open, free of preconceived ideas, in contrast with an expert's mind, which is limited, constrained by holding on to prior experience, knowledge, which fuels expectations. Assumptions. I remember how, in the days leading into my first seven days, Sashin, obviously I was like a lot of people, I was anxious but excited at the same time. And several people told me about their experience. Doing Sashin and gave me lots of advice as if my experience would fall in line with theirs. It didn't. Although learning about the experience of others can be helpful at times and affirming. Especially during times of difficulty. It's helpful to know you're not the only one going through a difficult time. Still, we cannot depend on other people's experience. Zen is a school of direct experience, it's a mistake to expect or assume anything on the basis of what you hear or read. And it's a trap of the ego, which always wants to be in a position of control. Trust your practice, not someone else's. And find out for yourself. And yet, in saying that, there is actually a trajectory, a familiar pattern that many people experience in practice that is a reflection of our collective conditioning. In behavioral psychology, there's a theory called the gold, the goal gradient effect. Goal gradient effect. This theory was first developed by Clark Hull in 1932, and he observed a distinct pattern in the behavior of mice and rats. And in what came to be regarded as a classic experiment, Hull found that rats placed inside a straight alley, ran progressively faster as they got closer to the tray of food placed at the end of the alley. And the same with mice when placed inside a maze. As they got closer to the food reward, they sped up. You know, while rodents and humans don't at all look alike, um, they are biologically similar. And that's why rodents are often used in such experiments. And applied to humans, the goal gradient theory suggests that we're motivated not by how far we've come, but how close we think we are to attaining a goal. Uh, An example that maybe some of you can relate to is if you've ever run a 5K race or some other race, uh, you probably experienced a burst of energy at the point where you saw the finish line that was in your sight. And there's more to this phenomenon. I listened to a Hidden Brain podcast interview with a psychologist named Adam Alter. And he's the author of the book, Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. He describes in the interview how the gradient goal effect reveals a more complicated picture of human motivation. And here's what he said in the interview. The original idea that Hull described was that we are much quicker when we're closer to the goal. But subs- subsequent research has shown that it's a bit more complicated than that, that actually we slow down dramatically in the middle when we're sort of unmoored, where somewhere between the beginning of the goal and the end of the goal. And so we move quickly at the beginning because we have a bit of motivation, we are fresh, we're ready to go, and we slow down in the middle. And then as we get to the end of the process, we speed up again as the goal comes within view. So it's a sort of U-shape. You go quickly, then slowly, then quickly again. Alter's description of this pattern goes along with what I've experienced in working on writing projects if you've ever had to create a major written work like a book or a dissertation or even on a small, smaller scale, an essay, you often start off with a good degree of momentum as you work through your ideas and craft your introduction. But as you get more into it, when you reach the middle, that's the toughest part becomes difficult to write. You might get stuck, even feel paralyzed, can't get a word out. Sitting down to write becomes painful. You avoid it. You procrastinate. But then, with determination, if you persist and trudge through it, once you draw closer to the conclusion... It speeds up, and you're writing with ease again. Suddenly, words flow more easily. Maybe that's why it's often recommended that in writing, you write the introduction and the conclusion first, and the body, the middle part, last. This process also makes me think of uh, unraveling a knotted-up chain. Have you ever had to untangle a fine gold or silver necklace? It can be incredibly aggravating. You start off inspecting it. You go for the easy part. Once that's done, then you hit the really tough knot. And you spend a lot of time on it. It's an insurmountable task. And then at some point it loosens up and the rest unravels easily. You break through it. In the interview with Alter... He goes on to say that the way to work with the sometimes tough middle part is to atomize your goal. So in the case of a long-distance runner, that means focusing on finishing the next mile or the next few yards or the next step, and the next one. Not the finish line that's far down the path. And then in the case of a writer, you would focus on just this sentence, or this one paragraph, or section, or chapter. Not the thing in its entirety. And in doing so, you're less likely to get frustrated or overwhelmed. You feel a sense of attainment along the way, bit by bit. So you're basically resetting the end goal to be a very small one, over and over. And in turn, you're getting little bursts of dopamine along the way. But how would that apply to Zen practice where there is no goal? There's nothing to attain. Nothing that's separate or outside us. We've already got everything we need. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. And yet, there's no end to practice. It's ongoing. There's always further to go in uprooting our delusive thoughts and habits of mind. So upon taking up practice at some point, sooner or later... It turns out many people do experience that middle terrain. The sense of newness that we had at the outset, sense of excitement is gone, and now we're just slogging along. We may get frustrated as we find ourselves repeatedly lured into thoughts, we discover that, yes, indeed, practice is unending. And so the motivation and inspiration that we had at the outset starts to fade. Of course, it's only natural that as you gain more experience with the zazen, with the practice, it's only natural that you would develop expectations just as you would with any other life experience or activity. You learn along the way. You learn about your habits, for one. But you also might evaluate the length of time that you sit how often you sit, the state of your mind, the extent of your thoughting, comparing and contrasting, the quality of your zazen. And one of the more difficult challenges we can run into is that with any little glimpse or insight, we might have, we can find ourselves wanting more, wanting to get back to where we were, back to that time when we had a really good sit or a really good sashin And likewise, with any difficult experience we have with zazen, perhaps working with emotional or physical pain. We remember it. And it can lead to resistance, avoidance, fear. We might come up with excuses not to sit. Telling ourselves, I just don't have enough time. Or it's not working for me. Of course, There is an exception to this, and that would be working with trauma. People who have PTSD or who are in the midst of significant depression or anxiety may need to make adaptions to their practice for a good reason or even take a break from sitting altogether. And a teacher should be able to help you navigate that. But ultimately, in Zen practice, just as in life, the two are not separate, there are lows and there are highs. We can't perceive one without the other. high and low, good and bad, light and dark, and so on. They're all two sides of the same coin. And it is through the experience of darkness that we come to know light. And it's through the experience of light that we come to know darkness. We want to reward. We want to see positive results. We want to find that tasty morsel of food at the end of the maze. And we want it sooner rather than later. But that's not how the process works. I'm reminded uh, of Bodin Roshi's vast collection of Zen merchandise. Products that use the word Zen as a marketing gimmick. Equating it with the pursuit of endless pleasure and bliss. And some of you are familiar with these products. There's perfume, soap, toothpaste, yeah, Zen toothpaste. Cereal. Energy drinks. Wine. And even digestive enzymes and Zen garden fertilizer. We want that perfect we want that perfect lawn. The perfect body. Perfectly white teeth and a perfect practice. But this is looking outward. It's not inward. And in practice it can take the form of holding on to some mental image of progress or success. When we cling to a fixed image of what we think our practice and our life should be like, we are likely to get stuck. And that's because we're holding ourselves up to an idea, an image, rather than trusting our own experience, investigating our own experience. Nothing is fixed. Everyone and everything is in flux. This is not just what the Buddha taught. It's the lived experience of birth and death, of being human. Conditions come and go. Everything passes. Why hold on to some fixed idea? It's actually not possible to get stuck. As soon as we label or identify ourselves as stuck in our practice, in that moment, We've attached onto a thought, a judgment. We think there's a problem that needs to be fixed. And that's our result seeking mind taking over. I've been working hard. I've been sitting so much and nothing's happening. My practice feels stale. This koan isn't working for me. I'm not cut out for this. I go to sashin after sashin after sashin. What do I have to show for it? dwelling in those kinds of thoughts is a recipe for getting stuck your practice becomes a grim endeavor speaking from first hand experience for some the feeling that you're in a rut or spinning your wheels, or so many apt metaphors we can use. Um, that feeling can go on and on for weeks and months, maybe even longer. And the, the problem isn't that thoughts about our practice arise. We can't control our thoughts any more than we can control the weather Thoughts in themselves, no matter the content of them, positive or negative, they're not a problem. We only have one job to do, and that is simply to keep our attention on our practice, whatever it is. Working on a koan, counting or following the breath, shikantaza. That's it. That's our job. Nothing else. In his book, Getting the Buddha Mind, which is a rather paradoxical title, (laughs) Getting the Buddha Mind, Chan... Chan Master... Sheng Yen Yen says this about practicing with thoughts, not against them, but with them. He says, Buddhism condemns fighting and advocates non-opposition to one's enemies. This principle also applies to meditation. When you meditate, Vexations and scattered thoughts may arise. You may be hindered by bad habits or disturbed by noises. If these problems annoy you, no matter where you are, you will be unable to settle your mind and practice. You have merely added another layer of scattered thoughts to your original set. The result is wasted effort. If you do this habitually, the more you meditate, the more disturbed and ill-tempered you will become. This is why many so-called old cultivators have very irritable dispositions and become angry at the slightest provocation. This is due to their wrong approach of opposing, fighting against their vexations and scattered thoughts, thus increasing their problems and creating much internal tension. We need to let thoughts be. Any attempt to do something with them is going to fuel frustration. We need to trust that they will take care of themselves as long as we keep returning our attention to our practice. I've always liked um, the metaphor Roshi uses to refer to thoughts as secretions, like bodily fluid. Can't control it, just comes out. And we can also glean some wisdom from that gradient goal theory. <laughs> It's amazing that a lot of what the Buddha taught is affirmed by science. We know that our conditioning leads us to expect that our practice and our life are supposed to be in a constant state of growth and progression. As if We're always getting better, always moving forward, always getting closer. Toward what? Instead, we need to atomize our practice. Focus on one breath, one exhalation. And then the next one. We can atomize our life. Be present for this one moment. As ordinary as it is. Sitting here. Wearing a brown robe. The smell of incense, the glow of the altar. Be here. And if you find that a feeling of stuckness persists, there are some things you can do to shake up your practice and maybe dislodge whatever it is that's causing that body-mind tension. We do have the ability to tap into that beginner's mind over and over. It's always available to us. But there is a caveat. The more we identify with the condition of being stuck and the felt need to get unstuck, the more we make it into a thing, an enemy to go into battle with, a problem to fix. So we run the risk of employing our habitual result-seeking mind. Albert Einstein famously said, Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So if you're feeling like your practice is stuck or that you've settled into a routine and are contentedly just coasting along, it might be time to try something different, but to do it without expectation for results. And there are countless ways of changing up our routines. Just a little bit of creativity or spontaneity can make a difference. In terms of Zazen, you could experiment with sitting at different times of the day or different places, a different spot here in the Zendo if you keep going to the same one. If you live locally Try coming to formal sittings during the week, especially if you've gotten comfortable with sitting at home. Go to Doksan or private instruction if you haven't been in a while. Both are offered in person and online. If you normally drive your car while listening to music or podcasts, Try driving in silence. Try just driving. If you drive the same route every day, go a different way. If you spend most of your time indoors, get outside. Walk in the woods. Get some fresh air. Here's something I experimented with uh, during a term intensive once. Try using your non dominant hand for simple tasks like brushing your teeth or drying dishes. It's hard. And it can aid in mindfulness and also raise awareness of our taken for granted abilities. And of course you can also read a book that inspires you to sit or take the workshop again. At various points over the years when I was feeling unmotivated, I re I reread Three Pillars of Zen. I also attended the workshop, the introductory workshop multiple times. It really helped. The words land differently because you're not the same person and neither is the teacher. So those are just a few examples of things you can do to shake up your practice, kind of break out of your habits and routine. But you can also consider non-doing Reducing screen time or abstaining from social media or watching movies. If your tendency is to keep busy, fill your days with one activity after another, try doing nothing. Try non action When we're feeling stuck, again, the tendency is to assume that it's a problem we need to fix. We need to do something about it. But actually, we don't have to do anything. Doing nothing can be very effective. What if we allow ourselves to experience that stuckness, to feel it without pushing it away, Without judging it? What if we throw ourselves into it? Get curious about it. Who is it? What is it that is stuck? The insight meditation teacher, Sylvia Borstein, said... Don't just do something, sit there. Don't just do something, sit there. We need to let go of that drive, the impulse to fix every problem. And even better, let go of the notion that there is a problem in the first place. We don't need to go anywhere or do anything. There's nothing, no condition, no feeling, no sensation that is outside or separate from our true nature. Have faith in that. In the Mumonkan collection of koans, the verse in the last case, number 48, Kempos One Road, says it all. Before taking a step, you have already arrived. Before the tongue has moved, the teaching is finished. Though each move is ahead of the next, no, there is still another way up. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.